Good morning again. Welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. Today we're all the way to John chapter 14. 14. We're in our For the Love series where God's challenging us to grow in the love, to receive more of His love, and to be vessels of it in risky, practical, dangerous, wonderful ways. So we're in chapter 14. Again, we're doing this series alongside our sister church in Austin called Mosaic. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. John chapter 14, if you're following along in your Bible or on the screen, we'll read verses 1 through 11. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Help us to not take this for granted. You are the same God who's made it to where the, the oxygen in the air goes through our lungs and provides oxygen to the, the extremes of our, our capillaries and our blood. You sustain our life. You give us life. Let us not take for granted the things that we're familiar with. We all in here go in and out of a state of being troubled by various circumstances or inner struggles or feelings. Many of us abide in trouble. We make our home in that inner struggle. And so I'm asking that you, God, who, who gives us air and life and mysterious things that we can take for granted, I'm asking you to do a miraculous work today to where we could truly find our home, our true abiding and resting in you, and that the nations would be glad as a result. Amen. Today we're talking about finding our home in Him. 
finding our home in him. Now, as we work through our passage more deeply, I trust that God will powerfully compel you to find your home in him. And that he'll expose whatever else, whatever feelings or things need to be evicted and displaced in your soul in order for you to truly find your home in him. So let's go to verse 1. The first part of verse 1 is a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. There's an assumption that we have a certain ability to allow our hearts to be a certain way. And yet, evidently too, there's also a, such a thing as a healthy way of having your heart be troubled and an unhealthy way. And the reason I say that is that just before, the chapter before, but at the same dinner, Jesus is described as being troubled in the heart. It says verse 21 of chapter 13, it's the same night, this very last night before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus was troubled in his spirit, it says, and testified truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then later in the chapter, our first, first verse, he says, let not y'all's hearts be troubled. And he uses the same word for trouble. It's a Greek word that means agitated or anxious. So evidently there's a healthy way to be troubled in your heart because Jesus is sinless and he's perfect and he can be grieved and troubled in a holy way. But at the same time, he's commanding us, don't be troubled in the wrong kind of way. And furthermore, to make matters even more perplexing is when we we understand, we slow down and understand the context in which Jesus says, don't be troubled. I mean, let's just work back through it. After he says, truly, truly, one of you is going to betray me, then in front of everyone at this dinner, Judas comes out to be the, the guy who, yeah, I'm, I'm about to betray you. Jesus says, all right, go and do what you need to do. And Judas leaves the dinner. Have you ever been in an awkward public moment? I guarantee you that this surpasses that in awkwardness. <laughs> Troubling, you would think, at least. So they're sitting there, and Jesus is using words. He says, a new commandment I give you. You should love each other as I have loved you. It's kind of disconcerting, kind of like, this love that I've given you, now you can give it to yourselves now. And Peter was reading between the lines well, because he says, Hey, uh, Jesus, where are you going? He, Peter was a bit uneasy, and rightly so, because Jesus was hinting at the fact that I'm going somewhere. Peter's like, where are you going? And Jesus tells him plainly, where I am going, you cannot follow me. I'm going away. You can't come with me. Yay! Peter brazenly says, oh, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus is like, oh yeah, so tonight you will deny me three times. Awkward just got awkwarder. And then Jesus is like, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
In other words, I'm going away, you can't follow me, and you can't even get through tonight without me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. My dog, Frenchie, she has an ability to know when, when we're kind of packing up and going away. And she becomes demonstrably agitated, troubled, when she knows like we're going somewhere. If Frenchie can be agitated and troubled by her master going away, how much more reason do you think we would have when these, these men walked with the very Son of God? You would think that this is adequate reason for them to feel troubled. And Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts grow troubled. Let's remember what they got to experience. I mean, this is the Son of God. John chapter 1, we started our series with this mystery that the the disciples may may or may not have taken for granted. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. This is what they were facing the loss of. The very word of God. I mean, imagine the peace. You're, you're with a man for three years, day and night. You sleep next to him. You, you eat with him. You walk everywhere with him. You cry with him. You laugh with him. I want to know what it feels like to laugh with the son of God. These men had this. And at the point of losing this, Jesus saying, it's going to be a tough night for you because it all ends tonight. Do not let your hearts grow Troubled, as unspeakably great as it was for the disciples to be with Jesus, imagine facing being without him after that experience. You need to know that Jesus understands sorrow. When he commands you to have a certain heart disposition, it's not because he doesn't understand that you would have a competing disposition. It's because he does. When he says, do not be anxious in anything, it's because he understands why we would be anxious in many things. When he says, do not let your heart be troubled, it's because he understands the thing that would cause us to be troubled the most, and that is the loss of a loved one. Many of us have been troubled by circumstances, but the loss of people we love, whether it's by death or departure or rejection, In my experience, that's what causes the human heart, no matter what age you are, to be most troubled and that troubling inner state to play out in some of these most strange behaviors that aren't good. Jesus understands what it's like to face relational alienation. I mean, that very night, he was facing being separated from his father to go do the thing that he was supposed to do to bridge the gap of our separation. He understood that. For eternity past, he had been united with the father and he was troubled in his spirit. Even that very night later after the dinner where he was going out to the garden and praying, he was sweating blood. He understands your troubles. Let's just put it on the table. What would cause you to be troubled. Maybe you're in here, you're, you're the you know, kind of person that has a habit of pushing it down. Let me just tell you, that's not working out for you. Uh, it'll come up, it'll boil up at some point, probably when you have small children, but that's another. Uh, you need to come to the parenting class. <laughs> at some point, it'll boil up. What's causing you to be troubled? What circumstances? 
Jesus understands. He's gone before us in this. Jesus understands the temptation to be troubled, but he also knows that there are greater reasons to be at peace. And he wants to help you. Jesus is able to help you in your inner state of trouble. He knows that your life is on the line in as much as your belief is at stake. Here's what I mean. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled, but it doesn't stop there. It says, believe in God. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. You see, the belief in God is the anecdote for not letting your heart be troubled or for letting your heart be troubled. In fact, our whole passage begins and ends with believing in God. Verse 11, believe in me, he says, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, I said that belief is everything here. Our passage begins and ends with believing, but the whole book of John is about how our life is on the line in as much as our belief is at stake. Because the whole book is about this. The very end of the book of John, you don't have to turn there. You can stay in John 14. But John 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, Now Jesus did many other things and signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So think about this power of believing in the context of Jesus' audacious command not to be troubled. He's saying, do not be troubled. Believe. Have life in his name. Don't be dead. Be alive. Be alive in your believing. And believing isn't just some ethereal thing out there. It's not just some inner state of zen or mindfulness. It's a substantive, life-giving decision that we have reasons to make that outweigh the reasons to be agitated. It's not mind over matter. It's what matters most, displacing the things that matter less. It's faith appealing to a greater substance, Believe in God. Believing in God is a life and death thing. Let me get, illustrate this with a, a movie my wife and I watched recently. We were able to, to watch the movie titled The 33. It's a story of the uh, 33 Chilean miners who, for 69 days eight years ago, were underneath the ground before they were rescued. Spoiler. I mean... They all made it out, okay? Uh, But I also won't spoil much in saying that their ability to believe affected their survival. Most of us can understand this in a survival situation. I mean, their ability to believe, you know, general positivity, I guess, that they were going to be rescued was one important thing. But their ability to believe in God was an even deeper thing. I mean, the movie doesn't quite go to show all that happened on the original accounts of how these men saw revival and the, the preachers down there got to lead a lot of their buddies to Christ. But that, that little revival, their belief in God's goodness, 
is one of the major factors, if not the principal factor, of why these men didn't just decide to die and kill each other under there. Believing in God. Believing in God was essential to their survival. Believing in the goodness of God in the midst of circumstances that are less than good. Now, if I were to ask for a, raise, a show of hands for who's been buried underneath the ground for over two months, I'm guessing most of us haven't. But have all of us faced circumstances that challenge our ability to believe in the goodness of God, that, that tempt us to be troubled in our hearts in a way that's not healthy, in a way that affects our belief, our life-giving belief? And the answer is Yes, and Jesus understands. And he doesn't just say, I'm going to spend a lot of time on verse 1. He doesn't just say, don't be troubled, believe. He says, don't be troubled, believe in God. He says, it's not just enough to believe in yourself, to believe in fate, to believe in your teammates, to to believe in the power of believing. None of those postmodern twists are adequate for life-giving faith. He says, don't be troubled. Believe in God. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, as he'll very clearly and repetitiously dictate the rest of our passage, when he says, believe in God, believe also in me, he's not drawing two separate separations or distinctions. Like in a lot of other places in John, he's saying, when you believe in God, you are believing in me because the Father and I are one. So believe in God, and specifically, I'll let you know, you've, you've seen the one to believe in. You've touched him. You've felt him. And when I go away, believe in me. Now, a little bonus I wasn't planning on mentioning, but later he says to Thomas, when Thomas asked him to touch him for proof, he said, Blessed are you because you've believed, but blessed more are the ones who do not see and yet they believe. We can have a huge blessing in life in his name through believing in God, in God's son Jesus, and the power that he's given. He's given the command in prohibitive form, don't, don't be troubled in your heart. Do not tolerate turmoil of soul. And then in positive form, believe in God. So he's told us what to do, but then he goes deeper to give us reasons. And now, these aren't just like empirical reasons, like don't be troubled, believe in God. Now, here's five reasons to believe in God. They're not bullet points. He gives a a relational reason. It's almost like he's saying, do not be troubled, believe in God. You want to know why? And then he opens the door. Come here, let let me tell you a secret. Let me, let me show you something. Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I need to break down verse 2 and show you something that I haven't been doing in recent years very much uh, in showing you the Greek word and stuff. The reason I, I haven't is Years ago when I used to do this, I realized I'm more showing you the Greek word to kind of show you that I think I'm smart. And uh, let me just say that any monkey can type on keys and copy and paste from a Bible website. And so I want to be careful about that. But you need to see the word that Jesus uses 
because the rarity of this word is important and the mistranslation in the King James in particular is important. Verse 2, when he says, in my father's house are many rooms. The word used is monet. Everyone say monet. This is important. Monet doesn't mean just a physical space. It's a place of abiding, of abiding, the act or the place. It's room. This could easily be translated, in my father's house, there is much room. There's much relational space. There's ability for everyone who would call on my name and believe to be intimate with me. That's what he's saying. Now, in light of knowing this, Consider how King James translates it. It's a terrible translation. King James says, In my father's house there are many mansions. And so the last several hundred years, we've misunderstood this verse, thinking like, man, Jesus invites us to, to a big old house. And we sing like, with big, big house. And we, okay, the house is great. I, I don't, I'm not going to, disbelieve that God has better houses than we have, but he has better than houses. He's saying there's place to be with me. He clarifies that in the rest of the chapter. But this word monet is so important. Jesus later says in this very chapter, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. Now this word home, would you say, he who loves me, we will come and make our mansion with him? No, because you know what this word is, this home? Can you guess? It's Monet. Hey, must be the, okay. If that... If a little 90s jingle helps you to, to remember a Bible word, then I guess we can redeem that. But it's Monet. Monet is only used twice in the Bible, and it's right here. Jesus says, in my Father's house, there's plenty of space for abiding. And if you believe in me, you will have this home, this unity, this intimacy, this word Monet the root of it, Jesus uses repetitiously in the, in the book of John. This, this, the root of it also is mentioned in, in our sermon last week, John chapter 6. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides, dwells with, makes his home with me and I in him. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask in my Father's name, it will be done for you. Now, I think you can see that Jesus is promising here something so much more than a mansion or a timeshare next to the beach for those who believe and in believing have life in his name. He's promising nearness to himself, which is so much better 
than your, the best vacation dream home you could work your whole life for. He's saying, I am going to prepare this place for you now. And you can have that. He's promising a more real, more eternal place that he has paid the price to make space for, for all who would call upon his name. And so let's get personal for a second. When you stand before God on the last day, how will your excuses hold up for why you don't spend more time at home in him, in his presence? I mean, regardless of what you're doing, whether or not you're reading your Bible or not, but the Holy Spirit will make clear when, when you're there, in that place that he's prepared for you. I'm not talking about uh, what, what will your excuse be for not spending more time with church events, no. But in that place of home with God, how will our excuses hold up? Verse 3. And I will go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to heaven. No. I'll take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. See, it's very clear here. Jesus is not talking about bringing us to heaven. He's talking about bringing us to himself. The place that he's talking about is a place of intimacy and unity with himself. That's what he's going away to prepare this is so, so important. Jesus is heaven. Is heaven a place? Yes. But it's so much more. What's it like? It's like Jesus. Do you want to know what that's like? Spend time reading about him. Spend time with him. You can bring heaven on earth. And he's made space for that. Even if you bring a troubled heart to him and that's the best you've got. Believe. And he goes on to clarify something that's pretty amazing. Verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, Jesus isn't just a way to a place like heaven. Jesus is heaven, and he is the way to a person that has ordained our nearness, namely the Father himself. Jesus is the way to get there in that place of nearness. Now, I have to admit, over the last 20 years, I have cherry-picked this verse to make kind of like Western-style arguments about, you know, he's the way and the truth and the life. Boom. When Jesus is talking more about nearness to himself. That's the context. He is the way to the heart of the Father to where nothing else that would agitate our heart would cause us to miss out on the nearness of that. Jesus is the way to get there. He says, I am the way. Now, Jesus is the master at confronting timeless physical realities and using them to point to a deeper truth. Like last week, we talked about bread. And Jesus used the bread as an overwhelming example to say, you will only find your satisfaction in me. 
And today he's using things like houses and, and roads and ways to show something much deeper that compels a response from us. So last week, we learned that if, if finding your satisfaction or the attempt to find your satisfaction in what money provides, like bread, prevents you from finding your soul satisfaction solely in Jesus, then maybe you need to give your money away. How much? Maybe all of it. And likewise today, if being present with other earthly things, it's, maybe it's your thing and you call it your thing. It's your way. It's the way that you cope with your agitation of spirit or your, your troubledness in your heart. If, if, if those things prevent you from being present with God, maybe you need to leave those things behind. Maybe you need to leave your phone at home and just go somewhere with your Bible. Jesus says, I am the way. I was asking the Lord today on my way to church here, I'm like, God, I, I want to understand more deeply before I come up and preach about why you're so passionate about us being close to you. And I wanted a good reason. In fact, I, I often, I'll just be honest with you, I wanted something really clever to say. I, I really do want to know God's heart. I asked him to show me, just show me something that's compelling and and uh, the Lord reminded me. On my way down here, he was saying, Peter, you used to try and try and try to perform for me. And the greatest state of my pleasure in you, son, is when you stopped trying to perform and you became through faith, you became my son. You let me wash you, cleanse you, and you could be held by me not trying to perform for me. And son, even though I've worked for you to do and there's church stuff, and I get a thrill out of just being near to you. And that felt good to me. Like, all right, God, I'll, I'll take that. But then he, he just gave me a little bit more of that reality. During the first song, it's our fifth Sunday with our kids' church, so we're doing a few things that we only do a few times a year. My wife brings my fourth child, our, the babiest of our babies, up front because... Uh, I hadn't seen her this morning, and she just wanted me to hold her. And I don't understand the dopamine release or whatever of what happens inside me when I'm holding my child and squeezing her, but I understand that it's better than what I could understand or explain. And God was showing me, see that thrill you get out of holding this little girl? That's the joy I have of being your father and being near. And I was willing to pay a high price for that space, that place, that money. Jesus clarifies even deeper, as if that's not enough. He clarifies that this place he's made for us is an eternal place from eternity's past that was shared only this intimate place with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says between verses 7 and verses 10, six different ways I am in the Father. The Father is in me. We are united. And then he has the audacity to say, this is the place that I'm giving you access to the fruit of, the intimacy of, the joy of, this place of wholeness. And we should be left to think, like, that's kind of scandalous. That, what, he's going to let me in there? How does this work? Now, first of all, Jesus is not saying, I am the same person as the Father. 
He's saying, I am one in being, as the old Nicene Creed says. I am one in being. We're, we're different persons, but we are united. We're one in, in being. We're one God, three persons. This chapter is one of the best places in all the Bible that displays the doctrine of the Trinity. But even better than that, it, well, as good as it at least, it, it's a great place where it shows the heart of the Trinity. So it's not just saying, this is what the Father and the Son and the, the Holy Spirit are, are like, but it's opening the door. The Trinity is inviting us to come in the house and sit and experience this. Now, you might say, well, where, where do we see the Holy Spirit here? I have to take you about five verses down because to seal the deal, this is the way Jesus leaves our passage. He, he argues, look, you have plenty of reasons to be troubled. You have greater reasons to, to be at peace. I'm going to prepare a place for you, this place that is of oneness, that the Father and the Son are united, and I'm letting you, sinners, into this place. And we're left to think, this is perplexing. How, how do I get there? I'm dirty. Verse 15 of John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. These are some loaded words. Even this word dwells is the same word for abiding, the, the root of Monet. Jesus is saying this, this person of the Holy Spirit who's been performing powerful things in your midst, he's in me, and therefore he's with, dwelling with you. But when I go away, he'll be in you. And he's a helper. I I'd heard one preacher say, man, I'm so glad that Jesus says he's a helper. So often we think of the Holy Spirit as like an observer. He says, I don't need someone else watching me. I need help. And the person who dwells in us brings us into unity with the Father. And when you struggle to go back to that place regularly, and you, you go to bread and you go to other things, there, we don't just have an observer that shames us. That's the devil. We have God. We have a helper that lives in us and gives us help to go back to that place. That's who Jesus says we have. The Father in his heart has conceived of a place, a space that the Holy Spirit performs and Jesus went away to prepare. Now I want to close with this question. Why is it that Jesus said that I go away to prepare a place for you? I mean, consider this. Jesus says, I, I'm going away to this perfect place. Whether it's a physical space or not. I mean, think of it that way. If Jesus has to go prepare the house of God, does that mean that God's house is in disrepair? Like, is, it, is it messy? God's house in heaven, it's messy? Or there's some sort of messy relational thing that he's got to clean up with the Father and the Holy Spirit? No. We're in disrepair. We're messy. We're not fitting 
to enter that space. And so he's going away to build a spiritual immunity so that we can go into that place. He's going away to die the death we should have died as a ransom, an exchange so that we could have life and in believing, have life and enter into this space. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, who, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why he had to go to prepare a sinless place for sinners to enter into the perfect presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me, please? Jesus not only dwelled with men, but also he paid the price to make room for man's dwelling with God. The same one who put on flesh and dwelled among us died in his flesh so that we could forever and ever and ever dwell not just among him, but that his spirit would dwell in us. Let's not take for granted the unsearchable riches of his presence. Let's turn and find our home in him. Would you pray with me?